Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 317. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. So episode 317 really rattled some cages all over social media. We broke the internet, Bob. Yeah, my phone hasn't stopped buzzing with notifications from Facebook and Twitter, from the fan page, emails. It's been pretty crazy. Sylvia definitely dropped some bombs on us. So I think this is probably going to be a pretty busy Friday follow-up, or maybe not our normal format. I don't think that there were any voicemails that we're going to do this week, because I think there's just so much to cover just from discussions on the fan page. Yeah, absolutely. I've got bullet points of the main points here that people wanted to discuss. So we'll see what we can get through here today. All right, well, let's go ahead and get right into it then. All right. Let's get to our first point. Once you got into what happened with Sylvia, things got a little confusing, so I want to clear this up. We know Sylvia heard from somebody details about what happened to Keo on the day of the murder. What specifically are we talking about here, though? Is it a collection of rumors? Is it an eyewitness account that somebody told Sylvia? What's going on here, Bob? Well, through the interview and follow-up conversations with Sylvia, I think what we have here is not, quote, a rumor. So I I think Sylvia considers a rumor something she didn't see for herself. But the the impression that I got from her, well, what she told me when I talked to her after the fact, was that these were rumors, as she put them, that people told her, but that they had actually seen. So it wasn't like I just heard. It was that so-and-so told me that they saw this happen. So I think that I would consider them less rumors and more of like a secondhand witness statement. Okay. So it's kind of, you know, it's almost the telephone game. So you got to consider that, like how accurate is the information going through? Because it sounds like it went that there's like one level of separation. Like someone saw it, told the babysitter, the babysitter told her, I think is how that went down. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, I don't think that it's a rumor in the sense that I think of rumors, which is just a bunch of people talking with just baseless information. There was a purpose for all this. And she also did confirm to me that these, quote, rumors, this information was coming to her like the day it happened or the day after it happened. Okay. You know, she went to pick her kid up from daycare and they're like, oh, my God, so-and-so saw da-da-da-da-da happen. Do you think something could be said about these rumors coming out so quickly and maybe that telephone concept you were talking about earlier uh, wouldn't necessarily apply so much? Like the fresher the information, the more credible it might be? I definitely think that that's true. That obviously, the closer to the time of the of the incident, the information would be 
more accurate, more likely to be accurate. But still, telephone, you know, we've all played that game in school, referring to as when, you know, I, I, I whisper a secret to you and you tell somebody else and they tell somebody else, they tell somebody else. By the time it gets back to me, it's a completely different story. So uh, details can still get mixed up with, with no time at all, just because I told you, I told you, and then you told him. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, it's a copy of a copy of a copy. So there still could be issues with accuracy there, but I think the fact that it was, she heard this immediately following the murder four, but keep in mind, four months before Jesse James Swindell and Judy Gonzalez gave their story about the white Camaro, and before uh, Shirley Stanberry saw the Camaro across the street, uh, this these rumors were already going around that that's what had happened. Okay, and on the fan page, there was some discussion about whether Sylvia had listened to the podcast or not. And if her recollection of what she says she heard might have been influenced by the show. There was also discussion about whether her relatives, who do listen to the show, might have given her key information about the case that could influence her account of what she heard happen on the day of the murder. Let me just read you a few comments here from social media. Listener BJ wrote, LOL, Bob, this lady is a horrible actor. Of course she listened to your show when she found out you were interviewing her. Uh, I, let me let me stop after that one. So I also had comments of people saying that she sounded entirely unbelievable when I said, have you been listening to the show? And she said, no. There's a reason for that. Uh, for starters, there's zero possibility Sylvia has listened to the podcast because I had to spend the first 15 minutes on the phone with her prior to recording, explaining to her what a podcast was and why I was recording her. So this entire time we've been in communication... She's had no idea this was about a podcast. Her uh, daughter, Crystal, or her boyfriend, John, is the one that brought this to her as a listener and, and someone that I've, I've, I've met a few times down there. We've kind of become friends. Uh, John just said, hey, you need to talk to my friend. He never told her it was a podcast. But I know for a fact she didn't even know what a podcast was when we got on the phone. And that's why she sounds a little weird when I said, can I ask you? Have you been? I was doing that for, to make sure I had that on the record. Uh, not only for the audience, but also for the Conviction Integrity Unit when that interview goes to them. To, so I could clearly state, have you listened to the podcast? And she can go on the record saying that. The reason she sounded a little weird, because she knew that I already knew the answer to that. I see. You know, she, so she, you know, I, had, I spent an hour, you know, 15 minutes explaining to her what a podcast was. And then was like, have you been listening to the podcast? And she was like... Right, of course she's going to react a little funny. <laughs> yeah, she's like, no. Like, like what she was saying, I think, you know, subtly was like, no, dumbass, you know I haven't been listening to the podcast. Uh, but honestly, like, the, for me, you could hear some of the, the surprise in my voice because as, she, as I was hearing it, it was like, oh, my goodness. Like, that's so close to accurate as far as what my theory of the case kind of was at that time or is. And so I, I, I did have to just, you know, also just, just double check one more time, you're sure. Um, but... After that, too, uh, I think John has even got on the fan page and explained, and I've talked to him. Like, I have the text from, from from originally when he messaged me, and he said, hey, I asked her. She said something about kids dragging her around in a car. This is a long time ago. It was before uh, we even mentioned the Grove Rats. It is before, I, I think we had mentioned the Jesse James Swindell uh, story at that point. Had not spoken to the Stanberries yet. Had not did not have the interview with the Stanberries as far as the white Camaro being out there. None of the significant things that have, have come out were out yet. Okay. So so she had just said to him to John that yeah I I remember that case well it was some some kids that drug her around in a car mm-hmm. and he said well you got to talk to Bob and that was the extent of the discussion. He didn't even know the full extent of that story until he heard it on the podcast. Okay, and that kind of leads into my next point about her detailed recollection of it being either a Cadillac or a Camaro or a white car. 
You sort of covered this, but some listeners might have found it a little convenient that she speculated it was one of those two cars. Right. Yeah, I found this amusing, too, because I, I shouldn't say amusing, but, I, you know, of course, I'm reading these comments. I'm trying to engage in some of the discussions, and I've seen people that are so skeptical that are saying it's awfully convenient that she happens to be saying it's a Camaro or a Cadillac. Yeah. Well, okay, you could look at that a couple of ways. You could say, sure, that's awfully convenient, or you could look at it as, of course, she thought it was a Camaro or a Cadillac because it was a Camaro or a Cadillac. Right. Think about, like, if it was, if Jesse James Swindell and uh, Judy Gonzalez did, in fact, witness the abduction into a white Z28 Camaro, and that is what happened, and then someone else on the other end of that incident witnessed a white Camaro throwing her out of the car as she crawled to her death, like, is that convenient? No, it's not convenient. It's just accurate. The two fit together. So it depends on your level of skepticism, whether it's just overly convenient or if it just lends credibility to other stories that we've heard. Okay, then also about these two cars, one of our listeners emailed us, and in the email he said he had to put his two cents in about Sylvia's account of the cars because it was so spot on with our working theory. He said that after listening to the episode, she had told her daughter or her son this, and they had told her that we had been talking about these two cars. Her phony responses now make sense. Although she hadn't heard the podcast, she did know our working theory from her son or daughter. I now think that this is why her response sounded so unauthentic, because she already knew we had been talking about the Caddy slash Camaro. I think that this listener completely misread that situation. First of all, I don't recall in my conversations or on the podcast her saying that they told her that that was the working theory. What she said was, and I know know what happened was, uh, and I'll have to go back and listen to exactly how she worded that, how this person got confused about that. What she said was, They asked her about the case. Do you remember? She said, I do. I remember this thing with the kids dragging her around in a car. And they said, oh, my God, you need to talk to my friend Bob. And her response was, I don't think I have anything to tell him that he he probably doesn't already know. And John said, you might be surprised. And that was it. I've asked John and Crystal, did they get into the case anymore with them? Because, of course, when I was having trouble connecting with Sylvia for these last, I mean, it's been well over a month. This is before I went to Texas for the graduation. It's been a long time. Because, in fact, she tried to call me when I was in Texas to finally connect with me, but I was literally in the middle of the graduation when she called. But So I was kind of prodding John and Crystal for more information. Like, what did she tell you? Like, like, I want to know what I'm talking to her about. And they said she didn't. That's it. That's all she said. That's all she said. And she just told them, you need to talk to Bob. And, again, this happened well before we got into more depth with the car. So I don't think it sounded inauthentic at all. What you were hearing, in my opinion, is the fact that Sylvia... New, so this wasn't like a rumor to her, okay? This to her, this is what happened, all right? So so everyone didn't say, "Hey, I heard a rumor." That's not what this is. People in the neighborhood told her this is what happened. We saw her get snatched up by a white car. We saw him kick her out. We saw her crawl to her death. So she knew that. And then she hears later that the killer was caught and they arrested somebody and they were convicted. For her, thinking that she's knowing what had actually happened, when she heard that this that someone was arrested and convicted, she has thought that obviously it was the people in the white car that got arrested and convicted. 
So that was that weird response you were hearing from her was the revelation when I said, this is kind of our working theory. That's what I think happened. What was not in the interview, because I cut, you know, that interview was longer than that. We always, you know, we edit chunks out that are repetitive that we've heard before. Yeah. Was me explaining to her that, that someone else was convicted of that crime. The, and I didn't get too in deep depth with her, but I told her a guy was convicted from, you know, the other side of the street, a guy that was out jogging. And and she was like, oh, my goodness, that that that's so she thought that it had to do with these the, the guys in the white car. And so when I told her, but our new theory is that there might have been somebody in a white car. That's when she was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And it it wasn't that I had given her new information. It was that she never realized that the information she had was so important because she thought that the reason someone got arrested was because everyone knew that it had to do with this white car. So that that was more the thing. It was was her realizing that she had given me new information, mm-hmm. not that I had given her new information. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, and then to put a button on the whole credibility issue, I want to read this from listener Michael. Michael writes, It seemed to me that Sylvia's story was both eerily similar to Bob's Grove Rats narrative, but also noticeably different. To me, that lends some credibility to Sylvia, who heard the story years ago via neighborhood rumor mill. If she had produced a story to fit the podcast, I think it would have been closer to Bob's reporting. And it should also be noted that overall listener feedback was in support of Sylvia's credibility. But do you have any more thoughts on this, Bob? I mean, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I'll tell you right now that I look at things with more skepticism than anyone. When I come on the show and I'm confident about something and I'm talking on the show confidently, people assume it's like, oh, it's confirmation. But that's because I have just run whatever I'm talking about through the ringer cross-referencing with all the different evidence and putting it up to the different tests to see if there's there's credibility there. So, Mike, you and I talked about Sylvia's credibility quite a bit. Yeah. And things that when you have to look at details. When I spoke a little bit with Stanley Burke last year, and he kind of taught me little things to look for, details within a conversation, within a statement, to analyze a statement. So we look at what did Sylvia know, okay, in, in her statement. She knows based on, or when I say knows, based on what she had heard. She knows that the killers were young and that they drove away in the car laughing, okay? Well, that is not something she got from this podcast. That is not something. Like, where could that information come? Now, some people say, well, she's just expanding on her story. I don't think so. She, she specifically remembered that. So how could someone know that? Well, they would either have to be in the car, but if that rumor came from inside the car, Think about it. If you're retelling the story about how you and your buddies did something, part of that narrative was, is usually isn't going to be, and then we were all laughing as we drove away. 
That's something that an outside observer would note. So what that tells me is that the source of that rumor, if it's true, is someone that was in visual and earshot of the scene. It tells me that guy that, that, that some of these people were outside of the car, chasing her, stabbing her, whatever they were doing, mm-hmm. in order for her, them to see the people and in order to be able to hear them laughing as they were getting back in the car driving away. So that thing so so there there's a point, a detail that we didn't know before, didn't come from the podcast. So it's either completely fabricated or it's true by someone that was within visual and earshot of the scene. Let's look at what does she not know? There was there one you and I talked about this. What was the one thing she didn't know? Well, she didn't know that she was stabbed. Exactly. And that was more in our follow-up conversation too. Sylvia did not know that Kiao was stabbed. Interesting. So she's trying to, she's clearly not listening to the podcast. She's not fitting my narrative. That she had no idea who she was stabbed, but what she said were words like what she remembered was there was brutality. That's what she said. I just remember there was brutality. Mm-hmm. So again, where could that information come from? Well, imagine the same witness is an eye and earshot of the scene when Kiao gets out of the car. They can see something's happening but they don't know what's happening. So what they see, you know, say somebody's stabbing knives into her back, it could look like somebody swinging fists at her back. They don't know what happened. Well, well, then you think, so the, again, we're looking at credibility, overall credibility here, right? Analyzing the statement. So she says, after telling me after that, that she never did know that Kiao was stabbed, just that she was brutalized somehow. Mm-hmm. She crawled to her death and died. Well, how could it be possible for someone to not know she was stabbed? Every TV news article, every written newspaper article clearly said she was stabbed. We've looked at those articles. Says she was stabbed to death many right. times. How could they not know that? Well, who did she say saw this happen? What was her circle of friends? Well, they were the undocumented immigrants. Who didn't speak English. Right. Which means they couldn't read the newspaper. They couldn't understand what was being said on TV. And, and this is further from further conversation, too. These people didn't speak English. So even though it was on the news that she was stabbed to death, they didn't know that. They only know what they saw, which was that she was, quote, brutalized. So when we, when we start to piece all of these things together, to me, they add a lot of credibility to her statement. Let's say she's making it up. What's her motive? To be famous on a podcast? She doesn't know what a podcast is. She doesn't know who I am. Like I said, it took 15 minutes for her to understand that I was recording her for a podcast when we talked. Mm -hmm. So it's not for fame. It's not for reward. What would be her purpose in lying? And then there are people who have said, well, maybe she's not lying, but she's just mixing things up and different things. Well, Well, John and Crystal didn't know these details to tell her. And, and and plus, I I know these people. I trust them. You know, there, there's no reason they're going to be doing this. They know that we're trying to solve a crime. Right. Why you, would they do that? Yeah. And you've actually heard, all of you have heard John, I think, and Crystal on the show before. They were at the uh, the Dallas meetup at the live recording we did and yep. spoke. Uh, so if you want to get a little feel for who they are. But anyway, as we go further into kind of a statement analysis and look for what's valid and what's not uh, in our analysis, those are details. Details that could only be witnessed by someone close, like, say, someone who lived on Mark Street, whose backyard was on September, that watched this happen from their house, like the Stanberries, only maybe the house next door or something. Mm -hmm. But what we didn't get details about was the fact that she was abducted into a car up there on Apache and Grady, okay? 
There was no details about that other than she was just drug into the car. But then we hear about the cat calling and all that stuff. So to me, it tells me that this has a combination between not a couple of rumors, but likely a combination between a couple of witnesses. Because the witness that saw the end of this attack on September likely didn't see the beginning of the attack up on Grading Apache. Now, I've seen this. I've been there. And you can actually see that area of woods. If you were standing like at the fence of the backyard of one of these houses on Marks, you can see all the way over there. But you certainly couldn't hear what's happening. And again, you'd have to be all the way in the back of the yard. So I don't think it was the same people that saw the beginning and the end. And also, you know, that part of it could be rumored. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me that someone could see the beginning and the end. But where we saw all the details was at the end. Uh, other than the the cat calling and all that other stuff, to me indicates someone else probably saw that at the other end, but probably not likely the same person. Mm-hmm. So it could be a combination of rumors, which is kind of what they were asking earlier. Sure. But as far as her her credibility, I I don't doubt her credibility at all. Now I, I don't doubt that that is what she heard people saw at all. Now whether it's accurate or not uh, is still yet to be proven. But I believe one hundred percent that that is what she was told. Okay, next I want to get into wound patterns. Listeners are trying to match up Sylvie's account of what she heard happen to Kiao with wounds found in her body. So first, bruises. If Kiao was abducted and forced into the car, wouldn't she have more? We're all making leaps as far as trying to, to piece this together. So you assume if someone's abducted, there's going to be bruises. But think about, uh, Mike, you were a wrestler in high school, right? Yeah. And so was I. So that's a sport. Where you are grappling with people, you were grabbing, you were restraining them, dragging them, moving their bodies with full grown, I guess, boys, men, whatever people are our own size. Yeah. Uh, did you ever find yourself covered in bruises? No, not that I can remember. Me neither. Now, now in football, I had bruises all over, you know, from people bashing into me. But it's unless you're forcefully, you know, like holding specifically down like somebody's wrist and squeezing really tight that might make some ligature. It's perfectly understandable that she could be grabbed. Someone say someone from behind her wraps their arms around her. Like, so like her arms are at her side and they're wrapping arms around her. And then she's kind of kicking, trying to get away. Mm-hmm. And they drag her into a car that she wouldn't have a single bruise on her body. Okay. And then also I want to talk about the stab wounds on Kiao's backside. Originally, we theorized that they may have come from the front and into her buttocks when she was laying on her back with her feet in the air, maybe in a defensive stance of some kind. But with this new information, it looks like these wounds could... But with this new information, it looks like these wounds could support Sylvia's mentioning Kiao crawling from the car and her attacker stabbing her and her attacker stabbing her backside as she tried to get away. What are your thoughts here? I think that Sylvia's account of what happened, what she heard, goes a lot further to explain those wounds than our previous explanation. Now, not that it can't happen. You know, Jim Clementi is the one that suggested that if she's standing upright and someone's holding her by the arms, like I was just describing, mm. and there's an attacker in the front of her, if she's kicking her legs up, that a stab could end up in the the thigh and the buttocks at that angle. Yeah. Or if she's on the ground on her back and she's got her legs up to defend herself, it could still create that angle. Both of those are possible. That 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 would create the angle. It has always struck me as a little odd. Like if you're stabbing even sporadic, like you know when you swing your, say she's on her back and her feet are up and you're swinging your arm in that direct, like you know you're hitting nothing but her you know her her buttocks or her thighs with that you're right. not hitting anywhere where you want to hit right why not reposition and hit something a little more vital yeah because you and i know that you can you can stab a femoral artery down there and you could and you could bleed her out but it's clear from the other wounds that you know they they're they're going for the chest they're not you're they're not looking to carefully hit 
you know, vital arteries. So, but so it seemed odd to me, like, why would they still keep stabbing like that instead of reaching over the legs and going for the chest? But now let's, let's, let's assume for a minute that Sylvia's right. Everything she said is right. They kick her out. There's brutalizing, which means it did, the attack didn't happen in the car. The attack is happening or, or it's, it's continuing to happen outside of the car because in order for someone to see that, it has to be outside of the car. Right. So there's brutalizing happening, right? And she's crawling. Remember, they said high school kids and they're laughing as they drive away. So, okay. So, so this is the mindset of our offenders. If her story is right, which I'm qualifying that, I know more than I probably need to, but just to make sure if her story is correct. So you have a group of kids. This is a, what I would call a thrill kill at this point. Mm-hmm. Like th- th- these are psychopaths. Yeah. Like they don't care about, it. like it's fun for them. Again, let's say, I don't know, for example, they're white supremacists and see anybody that's not white as a as an inferior being and not even human. Okay? So that's the mentality. And they're laughing about brutally murdering an innocent woman. So is that the type of person that as she's crawling away for their death and they're laughing, they reach and stab her in the buttocks and stab her in the thigh as she's crawling away? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think I think it absolutely fits with the behavior that we're talking about. And it fits with the wound pattern. That, to me, and that's just my opinion, that, to me, makes more sense. Her crawling away and these assholes laughing and stabbing her in the butt as as she's crawling away makes more sense to me than her being unable to be controlled on the ground and kicking her feet up at somebody and then them trying to make a fatal blow but somehow hitting her in the legs and the thigh. Mm-hmm. So I think the wound pattern, and, and then now again take the stab wound to the back of her head. Okay, standing up, that's odd, right? We've always said that. What a weird thing to stab somebody in the back of the head when they're standing up in front of you. But now she's crawling on the ground. Just, just At this point, she probably has thoracic injuries. She's, you know, she's dying, and she's crawling away, trying to get away from these people, and they're laughing, and then somebody just comes up behind her and just start, like stabs her in the back of the head. That makes more sense. Like all these wounds all of a sudden make more sense if she was stabbed with the, the hard, powerful stabs in the front that cause her to go down. And then she starts crawling. And then you have, as she's crawling along, they're running beside her, stabbing her in the buttocks, stabbing her in the thigh, stabbing her in the back, weaker, not as deep wounds, uh, back of the head, her cheek, all that. I think it's likely that those happen as she was crawling. If Sylvia's story is right, I think the wound patterns do fit that scenario. Okay, and then digging further into her crawling, there was discussion on whether or not Kiel crawled from the car after being kicked out. Uh, we have listener Renee here posting to the fan page, if she did indeed crawl after being kicked out of the car, wouldn't there have been dirt or grass under her nails? Also, why was there not a blood trail? She would have had to crawl on her stomach. So that's just not accurate. And again, it's a lot of that is based on uh, kind of our imaginations and what we see in the movies or TV or whatever. First of all, that there has to be a blood trail. Well. As someone who is, as you as you all know, I'm I'm a hunter. And one way when, when you're a hunter, something that you have to do is to track animals that you've shot by a blood trail. And in order to do that, it takes a lot of skill and a lot of experience to get down on your knees and and look at literal blades of grass and look for tiny droplets of blood, you know, to figure out the direction that the game may have gone off to. So in, in this case, what blood trail are we looking at? Looking at what we've read about Kiao's body when it was found. What does Danny Stanbury say? He sees her laying there, doesn't notice hardly any blood, 
Uh, back in 91, he said he saw some blood on her face. Now he doesn't remember there being any blood and a little blood on her midsection. And that was it. So keep in mind, as soon as one of, and I think uh, there was a listener, Richard Harris, had made this point on the discussion page that once that one stab wound went through the diaphragm, there's a loss of thoracic pressure and blood is just going to start pooling within that cavity. And it's, it's not going to be spurting out. There's aren't arterial wounds. So it's internal bleeding that eventually is going to soak through all the layers of clothing and start coming out. But it's not going to be just blood everywhere. So at best, you'd be looking at drops of blood uh, that would be easy to go unnoticed. Now, what we also have is a narrowed path of travel for all of the emergency workers because you have this small gate in the fence, right? The small opening in the fence. Yeah. Which means wherever her she went through that same gap, so if there is a blood trail, it goes from that gate up to where she ended up, which is exactly the path that all three EMTs went, both first arriving officers, Danny Stanbury ran through twice. All these people ran, walked, trampled right over where there could have been a blood trail before anyone ever looked for a blood trail. So it is all going to be that exact same path of travel. It's not like they all came from different angles. So the fact that we don't know that there was a blood trail, first of all, doesn't mean that there wasn't a blood trail. And also, given her wound patterns and not knowing when each wound was inflicted, it's very possible that she just didn't leave a blood trail at all. Now, we do note in the one report by Watts where he said that he examined the clothing, and he said, what did he say? There were smudges of blood on her pants, right? but no drops. So imagine you're crawling and say blood is dripping off of your face and it hits the ground in front of you, and then you crawl over it, and it smudges onto your pants yeah. as you're crawling past it. So I think that leads more credibility to the crawling story, the fact that that was there. Now, as far as dirt under her hands or fingernails, depends how she was crawling. Remember, she's got a knife in her hand, which is a whole other thing we got to talk about later, I think. Mm -hmm. But one of her hands has a knife in it. If that knife was in her hand during that time, it would mean that she was holding it, and only her knuckles would be on the ground, not her fingertips because they were wrapped around the knife. You know, if you imagine yourself crawling with a knife in your hand. Uh, and also, what we do notice from the couple of crime scene photos that we do have, the grass was dead. It was very dry. So because people have asked about grass stains and dirt stains, okay, uh, we don't know the speed she was crawling at. We don't know the condition she was in. We do know that it's unlikely there would be grass stains because the grass was all dead and it was very dry. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Mike and I, if you watch our Periscope, which, by the way, thank you for being a good sport, Mike. Hey, thanks for the free pants. <laughs> Mike got himself a nice pair of new Four Athletics pants because uh, we wanted to put on the, the closest thing we could find to sweatpants that she might have been wearing. It had Mike go out in the field behind my house here that was pretty dry, very similar to what it was in Texas back then. And Mike tried crawling at a bunch of different speeds and a bunch of different ways to see if you'd end up with grass stains on the pants. And the result was... No bueno. Yeah, there was no no grass stains on the pants at all. So the fact that there's no grass stains on the pants also doesn't tell us that she didn't crawl. Uh, so we have no evidence saying suggesting that there's no way that she couldn't have crawled, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, but we do have some evidence indicating that she might have. And that was the smudges of blood on her pants. There's just no way that I can see how you get smudged blood on your pants. Well, I guess there's other ways, but it's one way that you could get smudged blood on your pants is that blood dripped onto the ground and you crawled through it. And then we have the wound patterns on the back of the buttocks and the back of the thigh. I think all of that could be explained 
by her crawling away just the way Sylvia told us. Okay, why don't we take a quick break here for the ads, and then we'll come back with some more content. Sounds good. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose. At GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. All right, let's move right along with the rest of these bullet points here. All right. Let's talk about skid marks, Bob. Yeah, I saw some of this discussion. A lot of people were asking or or, or assuming. Again, there's all these like Hollywood, what you think would happen. Right, exactly. It's like people watch a Jason Bourne movie and they think that every, every time... <laughs> Every time a car speeds off, it leaves skid marks. Always, right. Yeah. And when you shoot somebody, they fly 10 feet into the air. Right. Yeah. Um, so, no, this, these Z28s actually weren't all that powerful of an engine, from what I'm told by the car guys. Um, I knew some people that had some similar cars. And is it possible for a Z28 Camaro to squeal their tires and leave tire tracks or skid marks on the road? Yeah, it's possible. But it's not like it happens every time. It's not every single time. Imagine if every time one of these cars pulls away from any intersection, they're burning rubber on the side of the road. Just, <laughs> just like they're dropping the kids off at school. All right, see you later, guys. <laughs> it's, it doesn't happen. So I, I guess maybe a bit of a smart-ass way to say it. But yeah, so it's, is it possible that they could have slammed on the gas and maybe less skid marks? Well, if there's four or five guys in the car, probably doubtful that it's even possible unless it was a stick. But is it likely? Like, does it happen often? Like, you have to actually make an effort to squeal your tires. So the fact that there's no tire squeal marks on the side of the road really doesn't tell us anything. You know, that that just means that either no car was there at all, or it wasn't a muscle car, or that it was a muscle car, and they happened to not squeal their tires when they left. All It, it tells us nothing. Also, by the way, there's nothing noted anywhere that the police ever looked for squealed tire marks on the road. Yeah. You know, remember, they didn't know, or I, I, I say no, like we're sure this is what happened. We're not sure this is what happened, but uh, for lack of a better term, they didn't know that there was a car involved. They just found her on the, on the the in the field there. So the skid marks are, uh, there's nothing there for us, I guess I would say. Okay. Let's talk about Kiao's knife here. Okay. A lot of listeners were discussing similar theories where Kiao may have retrieved the knife from her home during her walk. There was discussion about whether or not she would continue her walk if she felt threatened enough to go home for a knife. Let me read this real quick before you respond. Listener Richard writes, I know she enjoyed walking, but to be accosted verbally by several people in a car so much that she feared for her life enough that she felt she needed a knife, she's going to get said knife and immediately turn around and go back on her walk? Which I agree with that one, Bob. And another theory from listener Jill says she may have stopped back at her house that morning and grabbed the knife in between walking laps. I feel now more than ever this could be a possibility. If she grabbed the knife and was grabbed within minutes, no wonder no one saw the knife. The knife is tricky, honestly. Again, 
this week, and you've seen me, Mike, this week, going back through all these old documents and cross-referencing everything. Like, this is going to be an episode, probably the one after the Asia episode, is going to be just taking this statement and going back to the evidence of all the documents we have and cross-referencing and seeing if things fit. And what I'm noticing is, like, we've made a lot of assumptions based on the knife. So, like, it's been, that's definitely her knife. Well, when you look at it, it may be. It probably is, but we don't know that. What we know is that Kenneth Gove was, he said he saw in the medical examiner's report that she had a knife. And that's when he assumed, he noticed that there was a knife missing from his drawer. Mm -hmm. So he didn't even see a photo of the knife to see if that was the one. He read it in a report that she had a knife and then was like, oh, one of our kitchen knives are missing. Later, uh, and years later, he was shown a photo of the knife. And he said that if that wasn't their knife, then it was an exact replica because it had the same handles, including this notch on the handle. Well, that very well may be true, but as as you know, if you go shopping, you know, if you go to Target and look for kitchen knives, different sets, even different brands and different sets, pretty much are all pretty similar. Yeah, you know the way the handles are put together, and you know where the just all that. So again, by looking at the knife a few years later and saying, "I think that's either my knife or an exact replica of it." And the fact that no one has ever, everyone we've spoken to, no one has ever heard of Kiao carrying a knife. No one's ever seen her carrying a knife. It just at least has to make us consider the fact that maybe that wasn't her knife. So what what, what are some scenarios that that could be someone else's knife? Maybe the attackers put one of their knives in her hand because then if things got worse for them, they could argue some sort of self-defense or something like that. Yeah, that's possible. Or it could have been them playing a game. Like, oh, here, here's a knife. Go ahead, attack us. You you never know. I think more likely, I don't even say more likely, because that's just as plausible as what I'm saying, that, you know, maybe they, one of them dropped a knife, and she was, at, at the end of this this battle, was, like, grabbing the knife, crawling to the knife, trying to defend herself because someone had dropped one. Again, it's very chaotic. No matter what scenario we're looking at, we know it's a very dynamic, chaotic crime scene. Uh, so it could have just been one of their knives, and they're like, let's just get the hell out of here, and left her. I mean, there's there's a lot of different scenarios. Certainly, the most likely is that it was, in fact, her knife, except for where would she carry it. And so then getting back to uh, what Jill and who was the first listener? Richard. And Richard had suggested that maybe she made a lap, got scared, stopped home, grabbed a knife, and went back out. Well, there's there's a few reasons I think that's odd. I mean, one, I would think maybe Kirby might have noticed his mom coming back in and out. But maybe not. He was sleeping. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from what everyone's told us about Kia's personality, like if she walked around the block and felt threatened so bad, I better grab a butcher knife. I just think she would just end her walk. I don't. I mean, because we're guessing. We don't know. But God, what an odd thing to do if you're feeling like threatened so badly that you need a knife, and you're like, "But I'm just going to keep on walking. I'll just take my knife now." It just seems so unlikely to me. Uh, but certainly, like you said, it is possible. And then. Yeah, we have some. Well, I guess we'll get into that next week. I said we have a little bit of new information that's old information that we pieced together, uh, but we'll try to stay on point here with talking about Sylvia's stuff for now. Okay, can we talk about for a minute how Sylvia's statement could possibly conflict with Jesse James Swindell's statement, or are there ways that it supports it? Yeah. So the biggest noticeable difference between the two statements are Jesse James Swindell is very clear that it was a white. Z-28 Camaro that was involved in the abduction that he saw. And Judy Gonzalez's statement, while we don't have her statement, we have Royster's notes about her statement, also say that it was a Z-28. 
So from that perspective, if the two are both accurate and are both connected, it would have to be a Z28 Camaro. But then Sylvia says she remembers it being a, what she called a boat or a big car. And she mentions like a Cadillac or something. You know, a boat usually meant a Cadillac. So those two would obviously conflict with each other because you know one's a Camaro and one's a Cadillac. But the question is, do they necessarily conflict with each other? And so go back to what we were talking about, where the first-hand witness, the one that originally saw this, if someone witnessed the attack that created the, quote, rumor that Sylvia eventually heard, if they were on the end of the attack. So they saw when the car stopped, the boys and Kiao get out. Uh, they see the brutalizing of her. They see her crawling, and they see them get back in the car and drive away. Is it possible for them to have been focused on what was happening with Kiao and everything and not notice exactly what the car was? Sure. Also, if they just said, maybe they this is that telephone thing, right? So if they said it was a, a white car, a big white car. Well, a Camaro is a big, it's a long white car. You know, so if they said it was this big white car, maybe what I'm describing to you is the white Camaro as a big white car. But because of your experience, what you're hearing it, when you hear big white car, you interpret that as a boat. Right, a boat, a big Cadillac. So they, they don't necessarily conflict. The person that saw could have just said, I saw a big white car. Someone heard that and thought, oh, it must have been a big boat like a caddy. And then, you know, the, the telephone game it gets spun around. Uh, so if, and this is still if, the two are connected, the Swindell and Judy story and the rumors that Sylvia heard, I would fault as far as the make and model of the car with Swindell because he had detail him and judy detailed specifically remember seeing z28 on the side of that car right where we don't have details about that when it comes to the story that sylvia was telling us also today i was reviewing jesse james wendell's trial testimony and as it turns out they could both be right let me read you an excerpt from his testimony so I'm going to go back a couple of lines first, only because I want you guys to listen to what I think is something that really drives home the credibility of Jesse James Swindell. So imagine he's just telling a story, something he didn't actually witness, something he made up. And Blackwell here is making some suggestions. Watch how he sticks to his story, how immediately when something is wrong with the narrative that Blackwell's presenting to him, he immediately corrects them. So the question, when they grabbed her, where was she? Was she on the grass sidewalk? Answer, sidewalk. It was a sidewalk there, I think. Question, and they just, what, pulled up alongside of her? Answer, no, they was already parked, had her when we saw her. Now, this is important. So why does Jesse insist on saying, no, 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 you got it wrong, if he was making up the story? He's not defending his affidavit, because in his affidavit, he didn't say exactly when the abduction happened, if it was already in progress or anything like that. So it's not like he's defending a prior statement. To me, he's recalling a memory. He says, what, they pulled up alongside of her? And he said, no, they already parked, and they already had her when he saw her. Question, they already had her? And this is the important part for what we're discussing right now. His answer, it was like a car. There was a car right there. There's a car and another car right here. They was behind that car, and they was walking out with her. So that's something that I had just read past before, but reading it again, what does that sound like to you, Mike? That there's two cars. Exactly. He says there was a car here and a car right there, and they came from behind that car and got into this car. So there's two cars there. Yeah. And so and then and then we go back around to the fact that there was the reports of Kiao saying that from Ken that there was a white Cadillac following her, and then the white Z twenty eight Camaro, 
I think it's not entirely out of the realm of possibilities that there was a white Cadillac and a white Z20 Camaro both there. Just based on that statement from Jesse that there were, in fact, two cars parked right there. Oh, wow. I had never thought of that. Yeah, me neither. And really, I mean, it, it could be nothing, but that sounds to me pretty clearly that he's saying there was two cars. So as far as how, uh, I, I don't think, I think somebody had put on there that the two stories can't both be true, that they conflict with each other. And I would completely disagree with that. Remember, we're talking about with Sylvia, uh, at best, a secondhand witness. So there, there, there could already be some mix up in the story from the original witness through the person they told and then telling Sylvia and then Sylvia recounting it to me. That's that telephone thing. But the nuts and bolts of the stories definitely fit together, or they can fit together. I don't want people, you know, telling me this week that it's confirmation bias and you're I'm wedging it to fit. I'm just we're just discussing what she told us as a potential scenario. And as a potential scenario, I think that the two very well could fit together. And there were definitely details and time markers that helped Sylvia remember. The fact that what she remembered was she was afraid to walk in that neighborhood, and she was always on the lookout for a big white car. So what was told to her was credible enough to her to make her feel that she was unsafe. And you heard her crying. You heard her breaking down when she was recalling again that Kiao crawled and no one helped her. So that clearly is something that stuck with her, the idea of her crawling and no one helping her. And I think even somebody brought up, well, someone did help her. Stanberry helped her. Well, yeah, but that was after the fact. I mean, it wouldn't have been long after the fact. Yeah. But it was, you know, it would have been within a couple of minutes because she was still alive. But when you're watching somebody out there dying and two minutes go by, three minutes go by, that seems like an eternity. You know, we'd get that all the time when we were still with the fire department where someone would call 911, they dispatch us, we hop in the truck and fly there. And our response time is two minutes and 40 seconds. And they'll literally say, what took you guys so long? I called 20 minutes ago. Right. It's just your perception of how long that time is. And also, again, it's the the story started with one person, went to somebody else, and then to Sylvia. So it may not be, you know, that that's maybe Sylvia's interpretation of that was that she was there and no one was helping her. When, in fact, you know, Danny Stanbury did eventually go over there and help her. Okay, Bob, I think that's going to be it for the follow-up episode today. We did have one voicemail from listener Sharon. She was asking us how she could get in touch with Jesse, how she could mail him in prison. Could you help her out with that? Yeah, I mean, anybody who wants to send Jesse or Ed Aids or Kenny Snow a letter, it's easy to do. Just go to our website, truthandjusticepod.com. And when you click the seasons, there's information up there that gives you their mailing address. Uh, another easy way you can do it is by creating an account at jpay. That's jpay.com and adding them to your list. And on the website also, on our website, it has their offender ID numbers that you'll need to punch in for that. But then you can actually send them, it's like an email, but what happens is they print it off on the other end as a PDF and then hand it to you know Jesse or Ed or whoever you're sending it to, but they get it like that day or the next day as opposed to waiting two or three days. So those are the two ways. All that information is on our website at truthandjusticepod.com. Awesome, and I think that about does it. Yeah, uh, thank you all for all of your questions, comments, theories. There are, and again, I keep pushing people here, but if you're not on the Truth and Justice podcast fan page uh, discussion board, go check it out. There is just, some of these discussions have hundreds and hundreds of comments on them. Really sharp people on there making really good points and just drumming up some amazing discussion. I'm learning a lot by just reading the comments, and I try to get involved in there when I can. 
So go check that out. And moving forward, there will be no Friday follow-up episode or main episode next week. So this is the first time in a year since Mike's been working with me that we are taking an official, complete week off for vacation. No work at all. I'm going out of town with my family. We're taking a family vacation down to Kentucky and Tennessee. Mike's doing, what are you doing, Mike? You know, I want to go to the beach. The weather's been so nice lately. Maybe do some fishing. Maybe not spend a single day in a windowless room in the beautiful summer months in Michigan. That's exactly it. Right. Uh, So anyway, we're taking next week off, so there will be no main episode. There will be no follow-up episode next week. We do, however, two days from right now, have a pretty awesome episode dropping, and that will be my exclusive interview with the one and only Asia McLean. After the Shauna episode dropped, some listeners were tagging Asia on Twitter, telling her that Shauna is our Asia. That led to a conversation between me and Asia, and she agreed to come on the show and do two things. One, tell her story, because no one's ever really heard her story since the Serial Podcast, from beginning to end, as she relates to the Anand Syed case. And then she's also going to talk about how her story kind of relates to Shauna's story and give some advice to Shauna as she moves along the process. So hopefully you're all looking forward to hearing from Asia on Sunday. And then we won't be back until July 7th with the Friday follow-up episode that will follow up Asia's interview, which is coming this Sunday. So after this Sunday, nothing until the 7th of July. So tune in Sunday, and we'll see you in two weeks. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Thank you to Sarah Hoyt, Sarah Mueller, and Desiree Dunn for transcribing all of our episodes. And thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Keep sending us in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. You sort of covered this, but listeners found it pretty. Some okay, and then as far as their credibility goes, I just want to. I just want to. So the fact that there's no grass stains on the pants, and that. (laughs) I think he's done. (laughs) Lay down. All right, good job, buddy. Everything about razors is just my favorite. I just can't speak highly enough about Harry's. You gotta say that again. Fuck. What did I say? You said everything about razors. Have a conversation with me. Let's talk about skid marks, Bob. Like in your underpants or the kind that are like on the road?
uh, we'll get into this. <laughs> <laughs> so no, you asked just fine. No, I, I will continue. All I right. just thought that was funny. It was hilarious. I just I, I didn't a yes and you, and it's upsetting. <laughs> Is it possible to squeeze? God damn it, Mike. Dude, I'm telling you, I hit that button. You saw it, right? Nope. Dude, I swear to God. 